hidden behind closed doors. This is Beer and Be Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Jason, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to discuss 1979's Phantasm. Yes. Michael, what are you drinking? Oh, this is great. Today we're drinking, it's not one beer, we have four beers from Dimensional Brewing in Dubuque, Iowa. They were kind enough to support us and sponsor this episode with a four-pack. Cheers. Cheers. We're starting with the Chickadee Check Yourself. <laughs> It's kind of a great name. It's a Czech Pilsner. It was four different beers. We have a couple IPAs and a sour coming up, but right now it's a Czech Pilsner. What do you think? Perfect Pilsner. It's crisp. It's clean. This is the beer that reminds me of the beer that my dad came home from work. <laughs> I, mean, I this always is... say like this is your, like your, this is your grandpa's beer. Exactly. <laughs> Yard work beer. Let's just. Perfect. Let's just say we are in Southern California. It is late August and we're out in the valley. It is hot. And this is pretty awesome. This is like a great beer for that. Just a thirst quencher if we were outside pitching the bean bag, watching B movies. It's got that nice hoppiness, not your IPA hoppiness, but it's a nice dry finish. It's clean. It's smooth. It's excellent. This is another one from your... I contacted them when I was back. This is another one I picked up in my Midwest sweep. And uh, can't say enough thank yous to all these breweries, to, to Dimensional. First of all, Dimensional, this movie takes on Dimension Jumping. And there's a couple other connections I made as we were sitting here with the different <laughs> beers. I'm, we're so grateful whenever a brewery takes the time to even get back to us. Absolutely. And when they say, ah, you know, we'll support you. You know, give give us a four pack of beer and say go your go on your way. Uh, so we always want to honor that. We want to just can never give and enough say thanks. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. They do a ton of neat things. They're they're a great little brewery. They're they're new. I think two years. I believe okay. they're just just started about two years ago. And you visited them while you were there? Absolutely. I don't go back to to Dubuque without going to Dimensional. That's a hundred percent sure. No way. I'm not missing that. And so we are doing this episode for Shocktober. And, Michael, we both love this movie. We, I, we share a lot with this movie. Th- this was a collaboration pick. We had five Saturdays to choose from. So we decided you pick two movies, I pick two. And then we said, we got, we're going to collaborate on one. I think I threw, I said, what about Phantasm? And you said, oh, okay. Because we are, we are both so inside this movie. Way before the internet, we would get, I, we would get these movie books. Just thick, thick books that were short blurbs on movies. We were always going to the horror sci-fi section always see this movie called phantasm and finally back in the day i went to the vhs store and i saw it and i went oh my god i gotta see this and i rented it and i was blown away this movie still blows me away it's it's one of my favorite movies and we saw together phantasm ravager phantasm 5 and the original phantasm remastered by bad robot and at fantastic fest in the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood years back. And then we've gone hiking to the tree in Agora Hills before together. Yep, the Phantasm <laughs> Tree. We are we are total geeks. In fact, I'm not this is no joke. Somebody asked me, they found out, you know, we do this podcast and they asked me, they said, you know, what's the best B movie or what's your favorite B movie? I said Phantasm. Because this is the very definition of independent movie. This is exactly. a B movie. Low budget independent as all hell don coscarelli directed it you know from like bubba hotep beastmaster 
the other phantasms. Kenny you know? and company. Yeah. He's just, I mean, he's, he's, he's out. I, I'm a huge fan. And I mean, this movie was shot on weekends over the course of about a year. They went from Oakland to the, where the funeral home was shot. Northern California. Northern California, all the way down to Southern California, just outside of San Diego. Julian. Huge, hundreds and hundreds of square miles. Just calling people up saying, yeah, can you be here tomorrow? Crazy. And what's strange is I visited most of those places. I know you have. <laughs> when, I, when I took the girls on their California mission trip, as we were in Northern California, I'm like, we have to pull off the Dunsmere. And I took a picture and posted it. And I told Jane, I said, Jane, like, let Michael know that I posted this picture. I love this movie so much. You have a great story. I saw this movie in the movie theater with my dad. It was 1979. A movie was advertising called The Dark. And The Dark starred William Devane, Kathy Lee Crosby, and Richard Jekyll. I'm nine years old. And for some reason, that commercial and the movie's The Dark... uh, it's a really bad B-movie. It deals with the alien. I wanted to see the movie. And I asked my dad, do you take me to see a movie? It's rated R. And he's like, and I'm nine. He's like, yeah, sure. On a weekend, he took me to the movie theater to see The Dark. Now, we get to the movie theater. It's, I can't remember if it was in Fullerton or Anaheim, but it was a double feature. We go into the movie theater, and my dad's like, hey, this is a double feature. I, I don't think it starts with the dark. He goes, it starts with a movie called Phantasm. So, but before the movie even could start, a preview comes up for Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead, the dark, and Phantasm are all released, I think, within like April, May, June. Within 35 days. The end of April to the, like, the first week of June. And the opening comes up for <laughs> the preview for Dawn of the Dead. And I look at my dad, and I said... I'd like to go home. And he's like, it's too late now. (laughs) And I remember a guy next to us started laughing. Phantasm came on, horrified me. (laughs) Scared a nine-year-old boy to death. I fell asleep, never saw the dark until I was in my 30s in grad school and said, I finally should probably see this movie. But after, (laughs) exactly. But after seeing Phantasm, my dad thought it was hilarious for the remainder of my life to every once in a while like turn the corner unbeknownst to me and say boy and I, you know as a nine-year-old 10-year-old 15-year-old boy like it scared me to death and he thought that was funny but the movie part of the reason i enjoy the movie and love me besides being a really good horror movie is that there's a bond between my dad and myself because That's of this awesome. movie it's like my dad and spaghetti westerns exactly and really briefly, when the cast and Don Coscarelli were at Comic-Con years ago, I picked up Kate Coscarelli, Don Coscarelli's mom. She's a novel writer, and she wrote a novelization of Phantasm. It gives you a little more insight. It was based on the original screenplay that he had written. It gives you a little more insight and backstory to the movie. Pick it up. I'm probably not going to mention much more than that. Spoiler alert. That's all. <laughs> I'm going to dive in to the introduction and the opening credits. Now, what I recently watched a remastered version, which sounds terrific. The score and the sound in this film are incredible. The composer, Fred Myro, and I am probably, I'm sorry if I mispronounce his name, I think he's passed away. His score probably makes the, the it's probably one of the top, if not in the top five, horror scores of all time. It's reminiscent of Suspiria. Of course. It's not an aping of it. And I think Don Coscarelli has even said that he was influenced. He loved that movie. 
Who doesn't? If you love Suspiria, you're going to love this movie if you haven't seen it. But, I mean, there's that similar where it sets a tone. It's like an extra character. That droning sound, and it's a black screen, and then Phantasm in red. And it feels extremely heavy. It's oppressive. Makes you uneasy. Almost sounds like bees. Like electronic sound of bees buzzing. Thinking about it kind of makes makes me... It it makes it otherworldly it makes it very dreamlike and so then we're at or nightmare or nightmare <laughs> or you know a phantasm which is supposed to be a figment of the imagination a specter a product of fantasy but we're at a graveyard because every good horror movie you want to open up in a graveyard and also a sexy <laughs> which has a nine-year-old boy i was oh whoa <laughs> and this movie the the budget's like zero dollars but the woman who's in the scene would not do a topless scene, so they had a double come in. So they paid for a double to do the breasts, which I always kind of find interesting that they didn't just say, well, we'll let the lady who shows the breasts do it because yeah. we, we don't have money. Character Tommy is having sex with the woman, and she transforms into the face of the tall man. After she had stabs Tommy. Like, I've never thought, oh, going to a cemetery would be a romantic place to have a romantic rendezvous. And the older I get, I look at it and see it's like, I don't have a problem with cemeteries. I said this before. <laughs> I grew up, I my dad ran a cemetery. That was my first job. I worked at a cemetery all my youth up until I was like 18. <laughs> Wouldn't go out into the cemetery messing around, but but you, I mean you go park yeah. because there's nobody hanging out there. People don't go through a cemetery, so it would be a place to go park. I sort of get it, but I wasn't going out laying next to a grave. When Tommy gets stabbed, it's a very giallo Argento kind of vibe. Absolutely, with her with the knife, she stabs him. We flash back and forth. It's her. It's it's the tall man, Angus Graham. Who's, yeah. <laughs> If you're in the throes of passion yeah. with a beautiful woman and it suddenly started becoming Angus Scrim, a real <laughs> deal breaker, you know? I mean, nothing against the man, but he's like, and at this point. So Angus Scrim was 53 at this time. And then we jump to Tommy's funeral and we're introduced to Jody Pearson and Reggie. And it appears that Tommy wasn't killed. He committed suicide. Because so, at first you don't even know what funeral this is at. You're like, who are they talking about? Every point in this movie, the way it's edited together, sets you on ease because you're not, it's always like a dream like cloud. You're not sure what's going on. These two guys with the Dunsmuir mansion in the background, they just pop out of nowhere yeah. and they start talking. Granted, this it was early in Don Coscarelli's career. The dialogue is a little wanting. Like, this movie is about action it, and yeah. visual more than really tight dialogue yes. like David Mamet. There's a quick mention that Reggie makes. It's a tough way to break up a trio. Yeah but it's something just to remember for a later moment. Jody excuses himself because he's going to go in to the Morningside Mortuary, the mausoleum, because he said, I want to see someone. Yeah, it's funny because you'd assume Reggie and him would be so close that he'd be like, I want to see my parents. They're in the mausoleum. And so he goes in, and at the same time, you have his brother, Mike, running his motorbike through the cemetery. When I take my children to visit my mom's grave, I'm always, don't step on the graves of other people, particularly the the inscription part. No, I'm telling you right now, when I was working there, if somebody came tearing through on a dirt bike, even if you aren't a believer, if you're not religious or anything, that is so wildly disrespectful 
to just tear through a cemetery on a motor on a dirt bike, raising all sorts of hell. There's a funeral going on. And there's no way those people aren't hearing exactly. it, but it's just disrespectful. <laughs> and in a way, you almost think, oh, does this sort of set the table for a lot of what happens? And so Jody. Um, the older brother is now walking inside the mausoleum. And I have to say, you could read a lot about the people who designed this set. I think it looks fantastic. The only thing. <laughs> no, it, it does. The only thing I will say is when you look, again, been in mausoleums, the doors on most of these, I'm not a big person. I'm like 5'9". Yeah. My shoulders wouldn't fit in, much less a casket. So when they made it, it's like... Clearly, they had no concept. It just said, let's fit as many doors on this wall as we can. It would be just like Slender Man is the only person who could fit in these doors. They're so narrow. But once again, it adds to that really creepy dreamlike quality. Jody's walking through. He hears some odd sounds. I call them dwarf sounds. Like, like no, because they are. They're 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 these odd sounds. We could call them. Let's just call them dwarf sounds. Okay. When you hear that, it's the weird dwarves sneaking a boot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And at the same time, it flashes to Mikey driving through, raising hell in the cemetery on his motorbike, hearing the same sounds. And then it flashes back. And Jody is walking through. The man puts his hand on Jody's shoulder and says, the our, funeral is about to begin. It's our first jump scare. Yes. And our introduction to the tall man. And clearly, they had him on stilts because he's way taller than Jody, but they, I don't think they, those... they had him on lifts, it, and it was Angus Scrim's idea. He wore a suit that was much smaller, too small for him, and they put him on, like I think, a platform to reach down to try to make him look longer and taller. But it's the first of, of many jump scares. scares. This movie's great with the jump scares. Oh, yes. We have Tommy's funeral, and you realize that this is the funeral for the man that you saw killed in the first scene. It's interesting how they protect Mike. Mike was not allowed to come to this funeral they do this thing where mike is protected reggie says it's a good thing you don't let mike come and you find out oh their parent his jody and mike's parents died and it freaked mike out they at times treat him like an adult and at times treat him like a much smaller kid and it starts here i think at 13 years old yes it's rough going through your parents pass away i don't know the relationship between him and tommy he never mentions actually tommy one time so i'm assuming there probably wasn't i think this was like of course jody and reggie's friend i get he looked like the bass player the bass player in the trio or maybe the drummer you know i don't know they're a trio but he reminded me of um dwayne allman oh i was gonna say motorhead oh let let, let me see i think dwayne allman because he was red hair so Mikey, instead, because he has nothing to do, he is going to spy on this funeral. And part of it is because he has separation anxiety from his brother. His brother came back when their parents passed away, and clearly this is not a place that he wants to be. Jody and Mikey are close. There's an age difference about nine years. They do love each other, but this is not Jody's path to stay in a small town. Jody was somewhere else. His life was put on hold to take care of his little brother. So Mikey is out there with binoculars, and after the funeral service, and I got to ask you, because I always look at this funeral service, so what happens is, after the people depart, the tall man shows up, and he lifts that complete casket by himself, which previously you saw, I think it was like six pole bearers carry the casket. Jody, Reggie the, in there, like and, four and the, other guys. His friend Toby, who yes, shows Toby. up later on. Yeah. <laughs> and it catches him off guard, because that is it otherworldly should. strength. It to should lift catch you off guard if you see one person pick up a grown man's <laughs> casket. So after that whole ordeal, 
Mike is walking down the street and he goes to visit his psychic friend. It's an old lady and her granddaughter. Mike goes in. They obviously know each other, sits down, starts talking about Jody's going to leave. The psychic doesn't speak. The young lady's saying he's not going to leave. And then we do a flashback where it's Mike and Jody in this sweet. One of the most important things about Phantasm is this Barracuda. It's a sweet, sweet 1971 car. Plymouth Cuda. I mean, who wouldn't <laughs> want that car, man? That thing's, Another muscle car. <laughs> it's so cool. It's such a cool car. Black as hell. Mike is driving. Jody's in the passenger seat. So we get this back and forth juxtaposition of Jody and Mike sort of reversing the roles of who is sort of the father figure, who's the adult in the, in the relationship. Mike's 13. He's driving the car. He pulls in. We see Oregon plates. So we're, we, we're in Oregon. He parks the car. Mike gets out, opens the hood, pulls out a wrench, and he goes, I think it's one of the headers in here. Jody's leaning on the hood and he shrugs and makes a face like, yeah, okay, whatever you say. And to me, Mike as an adult, Jody young, but also Jody, Mike is so scared Jody's going to leave him. He's, he's got to figure out a way that he's indispensable to Jody. So one of the ways is Jody doesn't know how to work on the car. Mike does. So if Jody wants to leave, Mike goes, I work on the car. He can't leave me. So he's trying to keep himself attached in any way he can. And I think this is one way he does it. And it's also when Toby, which he was, you said he was carrying He's one of the, Tommy's. Yeah. And so. There's some editing it's um, very, continuity issues it's because a, they, they filmed it differently yeah. than they actually end up editing. But, but it's interesting <laughs> because Toby pulls up and they, obviously Jody and him, they know each other from yeah. high school. He gets out. He says, hey, man, you're, you know, you're back. And Jody says, Jody says, you know, what are you here for? Yeah. And he goes, Tommy's funeral. You we just, just had Tommy's we funeral. Ju- we, just carried, we just carried his body, dude. <laughs> you and me. So, I mean, so we get a little fill in on Jody. Because Toby says, what are you hanging around this dump for? It's Jody, a nice house. Jody and Mike's house is really nice. Yeah. You know, maybe the town's not that great, but the house is super nice. And I guess they're inheriting it. Jody starts talking about, I got to get back to my life, basically. The kid's 13. I love him. I'm going to take him to his aunt's. And Mike is overhearing this. He's just petrified of this. Then Jody's riding away on a bicycle. Just- yeah, because it's like a layered dreams where it's Mikey describing this to the psychic. And all of a sudden, Jody describing to Toby where he goes like the kid just won't let me be like alone. chases him yeah. he's running and down like the street layers chasing, and layers of- chasing Jody on a bicycle yeah. we come back to the psychic and then Mike mentions there's something else and he tells them about the tall man up at Morningside Cemetery lifting a casket the the granddaughter says we want you to take this test and a box materializes on the table put your hand in the box Mikey. And this is right out of Dune. As a fan of Frank Herbert's book, there's a point where Paul Atreides, the, the main character, he has to do this test with the Benjurat. And it's basically the same thing, putting your hand and facing your fears. And at first, Mikey freaks out, but then they're like, Mikey, face your fears. And he's able to control his feelings and is able to pull his hands out and the box disappears. Well, the box sits there until he pays her. Exactly. <laughs> And then he leaves. And I find it curious because when he leaves, they both laugh. The psychic and the granddaughter just start laughing. And he's described this like horrifying thing. The psychic, I assume, knows something's up. Well, my first question is, as a young boy who's facing separation anxiety, do typical young boys go to psychics for advice? And number two, what a horrible psychic she is. Because... (laughs) 
first. She says, don't worry, don't, Jody won't leave. And if he does, he'll take with you with you. And when, at the end of the movie, you realize, like, what does that exactly mean? And two, we'll get to the very next scene. Exactly. Because the next scene is the granddaughter. She's walking up to Morningside. She's got some flowers. A lot of people apparently have approached Don Coscarelli. I've always just assumed, because we go to a scene very shortly after that where the, the dimensional room, I call it, she's there. But Don Coscarelli said, because you don't see her face, you see the back of a woman walking up. He said people over the years always come up to him and say, was that the granddaughter? And he said, I thought it was pretty self-explanatory. So if you ever meet Don Coscarelli, don't ask him that. But then we go, Jody's sitting out there playing his guitar, wearing a bowler and a Rolling Stones t-shirt. And Reggie pulls up and Reggie's the local ice cream man. He's got an, an antique ice cream truck. Wears a white suit with a black vest. He's got his acoustic guitar with him. And they start jamming. Jody's drinking a Dos Equis. And the Dos Equis, it's a perfect segue to have another beer, Michael. Dos Equis, they gave money and sponsored this movie. And so you see, you can play a game with Phantasm and try to spot the Dos Equis bottles. I like Dos Equis beer. As a Southern California person, I grew, this is one of the beers that you grew up with. And it was originally the brewery started down in mexico in 1890 by a german immigrant the x's symbolize the roman numerals for upcoming 20th century when he first brewed the beer and so along with the dos Equis, this second one is called the mellow astronaut it's a kettle sour tangerine space drink and marshmallows you know it's interesting because mikey has that giant i don't know spacescape on his wall in his room in phantasm so perfect Kettle sour, tangerine. I get tangerine and I get creamsicle. It's the marshmallow. It's my guess. Oh my. Oh, nice. That (laughs) tastes like a creamsicle. Cheers. Cheers. That is delicious. That's wild. When you get into some of these these sours where they're adding things like marshmallows, because I have worked at a couple breweries and I I did clean up after brews, I always wonder what it's like cleaning up the stuff if you're using marshmallow because it's got to be very messy. This is delicious. Mellow like, astronaut. This is interesting. I liquid like creamsicle. It really is. Orange creamsicle. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, Dimensional. This Thank is you. This is very different. This is... Yeah. Smells like tangerine. And at the end, you get that kind of burnt marshmallow taste. At least that's what I get. Like, there's a part sometimes when I see marshmallows in a beer, I get a little worried that it's going to be a little, like, thick cloying. And this is refreshing. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, the boys are... Jamming. They're playing, and it's actually written by the actor... Bill Thornbury, he wrote the song. He was a musician. But there's this point, Jason, I, and we talked about it, where I start getting a little bit of a Lost Boys feel from Reggie, Jody, and Mike. Because Mike is a kid, but he kind of has adult attributes. Yeah. Jody is an adult. We really we don't know what he does. I think he's a musician because he plays music, and, and Reggie mentions the trio when Tommy dies. And so you go, oh, Jody, Reggie, and Tommy, they're in a band together. And then Reggie is the local ice cream man driving this antique ice cream truck, which is, you know, it's a fine occupation, but it's also something like a little kid would say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be be an ice cream man because I get to eat ice cream all day. And they get in this adventure. They even almost have a Captain Hook because they cut off the hand. So there's a a Lost Boys aspect that goes into this dreamlike state that this whole movie exists in. I just want to point out that Reggie's statement cracks me up when he says, we're hot as love, you know? I know. Dude, <laughs> Reggie, Reggie Bannister is like the stalwart, one of the stalwarts in this, in this franchise, and he's really good. I, I'm, 
his presence really makes me kind of feel happy. But when they're sitting there jamming after they're kind of done, Reggie takes out a tuning fork, does the tuning fork thing. You hear this single tone, and then he puts his fingers on the two points of the fork to stop it. That's important. If you haven't seen this movie, that is very uh, an important little moment. But that's when we cut to the granddaughter. Yes. She's in the mausoleum for some reason. I don't know why she's up here. Like her grandma should have said. So grandma's a bad psychic. I know. She's a bad psychic <laughs> or a terrible grandma. And she's like, I hate this kid. I'm going, to let, I'm going to let her go. Get taken by the tall man. She's approaching this door and there's that sound, that droning sound. Only thing I can ever describe it to is like electronic bees. Just as droning. She approaches this door, opens it. There's this light that bathes her. And then we get an exterior shot and we hear a scream. Yes. So that's the end of her. I assume. I have to ask you one question before we move on. When you worked at the cemetery, did they have a a large mausoleum? No. There was one built when I was working there. It wasn't super, super large, but I've been in other ones. But yeah, so there was one. It was kind of new. We had something, there was something called the crypt, which was like a, a sort of a mausoleum in the ground where people would be stacked on top of each other. Close to here in the San Gabriel Valley, there is a very large historic mausoleum. And they will host Wicked Lit. That's um, why you kept calling this Mountainside exactly. instead of Morningside. <laughs> and we've <laughs> gone in where the Wicked Lit is a theater troupe. And you'll actually move around the troupe. It is beautiful. But particularly all the plays, it takes place in October. And they're all horror related. Oh, it is cool. a it's very, awesome. it's large. And it is very creepy. Oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> that anyway. Sounds, that sounds really fun. So we cut to the Dunes Cantina, yes. the one bar in town, <laughs> and the quickest pickup ever. I was impressed. Joey, I mean... I mean, But it is the woman in lavender. Yes. You should like, at this point, you should, whoa, 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 Jody. A- absolutely. There's like two moments coming up in this sequence where you just go, oh, Jody's done. That's over. Yeah. Jody goes into this bar, pulls up in the Barracuda. He walks in. The woman in lavender is, you know, there's one other dude at the bar. And it's just, he walks over to her. Mike is following him, of course, and somehow can keep up with the Barracuda on foot. Everything in this town is within walking distance and or driving distance. It's I I, I described it. It's like, it's the Midwest in autumn because you go, well, I could wear a flannel or not. You know, it's, I could drive the Barracuda up to Morningside or I could just walk up to Morningside. Exactly. The lady in black or lady in lavender is there. He's like, he goes, yeah, let's leave. You know, he's got a cool house. Let's go back there. And she goes, nah, nah. I got to tell you, that would be a red flag to me. If I said, I've got a nice house. We can, we can go over here. And the woman said, no, I want to go get my kink on in the The cemetery. cemetery. I'd go, I, yeah, no. This is when Mike's bravery goes back and forth. And this is also the first time you think Jody's going to be the next guy. And it's also when I start wondering, if you're the tall man, why do you need to be the lady in lavender going out getting people? You run a funeral home. Aren't the bodies coming to you? But then also applying logic to a lot of this is just one of those. It's like trying to You untangle. go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, untangling a knot. Why is the tall man playing these games? He's so different from us. It enjoys these games. Like we, this we are the, just ants, and we're he's he has a magnifying glass, and he's put up bears and just playing with us. Or the lady in lavender is how he interacts with us because he doesn't really interact as the tall man. It's his way to sort of explore the human condition. They're goofing around. Jody seems kind of worldly, but on the road, he's going back on the probably road. probably roadie, <laughs> you know, something like that. Or in a band yeah. when the the lavender lady 
pulls her top off, exposes her breasts. Mike's peeping the whole time. Yeah. And Mike, he's a 13-year-old kid. He's seeing breasts. Yeah. And, and he goes, wow. <laughs> and Jody's reaction is the same. Like, wow. You know, this worldly guy. So they have the same reaction to seeing breasts. And I just feel like that's another, another moment where it's like they're adult children at the same time. This is so dreamlike that it could be a 13-year-old boy's dream because Jody does pick up on this woman and they don't they don't focus any on the interaction because a 13-year-old boy wouldn't know how to pick up a woman. It just it happens really quickly. And of course, their both their responses are both a response of a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> or the fact that, like you point out, Reggie's an ice cream truck driver. Like a 13-year-old boy, oh, that's a good job, ice cream truck. And his brother, he's just an older brother. We don't know what he does. I mean, it seems very an imagination of a 13-year-old boy trying to deal with things. But Mikey gets freaked out because of the dwarf sound. <laughs> the dwarf sound. And it is. It's a creepy little sound. I'll tell you what, dude. If I was out in a cemetery, and I mean, we used to go not messing, you know, yeah. just goofing around. Like you go out, play ghost in the graveyard, yeah. or you and your friends go out, do something, just be out there in the dark at night. If I heard that sound, especially knowing this movie, yeah. if I heard that sound, it's just like this like scrubbly little sound. It's terrifying. And Mike is he's looking around and all of a sudden it looks like was it the Jawas? They look like Jawas. And it from is the Jawas, Jawas right? Yeah. Not the sand the sand people or the Tuscan Raiders. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Come on, son. <laughs> so it looks like a Jawa comes out of nowhere and it freaks him out. And I will say Don Coscarelli, I listened to the, the commentary. And he said he was so bummed when he saw Star Wars because he had already been writing this movie and he had this planned. And when he saw Star Wars, he just went, oh, crap. Because they look like Jawas. Exactly. <laughs> and he even contemplated changing the robe color. But anyway, one of it these works. things come running out of nowhere. Mike goes screaming through. It's a funny scene. It, it is hilarious. But and it's interesting because he saves Jody's life. Because Jody is with the lady, and he looks up, and he goes, uh, it's my kid brother. I think there's something wrong with him. you know." And so he goes after Mike, tracks him down, gives him the keys to the car, says, you go on home. So again, we think Jody's going to get it, because he's going to go back to the lady. In no real world would you allow a 13-year-old to be driving around the street. So once again, it sounds like a 13-year-old's imagination. First of all, it is the 70s. Yeah. and th- I mean, things were way different, man. I'm telling you, even I, I, growing up in the early 80s, my neighbor, he would call over to a, a liquor store and say, hey, I'm sending my son over to pick up my beer. And his son was in high school. And they were like, yeah, okay. They would do that. I mean, a different time. And especially because Mike does, is the one who works in the car and drives it. In this instance, it does make sense. Also, Jody, he's not a father. He's a brother. So Mike goes home. And we have additional one of our major jump scares. It is terrifying. He is sleeping, and the camera works excellent. It focuses on Mike's face, and then Mike wakes up and it pulls out, and he's no longer in his room. He's in his bed. He's in a cemetery, and the tall man is hanging over him, and he also becomes aware. And then immediately, with the score and the music, things jump out of the graves and try to wrestle Mike into the grave. It scared me. Oh, I, I <laughs> and then when my dad walk around and go, boy, like that's all I could think. Because Angus Grimm, we have to just say we really haven't talked to him except that he was older, yeah. but he's a menacing figure. He is. And Don Coscarelli had worked with him before and said one of the reasons he he chose him was that on the set that they worked on before, he said Angus Scrim kind of was intimidating and scary, and he's like he is perfect. The tall man is one of the most iconic bad men, villains. 
in horror history. Angus Grimm made this character. Well, when you think of Freddy Krueger, you think of Michael Myers. Tall Man is right up there with those other yeah. modern horror characters. Yeah. No <laughs> doubt. And Angus Grimm made that character. I mean, he passed away a couple years back. He also signed my book. He seemed to be a very nice gentleman. He had an interesting career where he wrote liner notes as a big part of his career. Yeah. I thought that was really such a contrast to someone who would play this menacing he, villain He in was movies. on the commentary and he actually mentioned that. He said he would be writing liner notes and then he'd get a call from Don Coscarelli and say, can you come shoot some scenes? <laughs> and J.J. Abrams was such a big fan of this movie that when he had his alias TV series with Jennifer Garner, Angus Grimm played one of the agents, one of the top agents oh. that would come in every once in a while and do conduct interviews to make sure that you weren't switching sides. Interesting. And of course, he was also in Vampirella. <laughs> we go to the streets of Julian, California. Yes. <laughs> because Mike's walking the streets. You know, he's got a lollipop, just enjoying his days. Like, man, this is cool. I'm 13. Checking for coins in the yeah. phone. Like, which no one does nowadays. <laughs> no, but I've done it. So when, I, when I. I was a kid, you never know. And I think I found a couple quarters that, you know, back in the day, you go, dang, when you could go buy like candy with a quarter. Yeah. So he's walking and it's, it's slow motion. It's a really wonderfully shot scene. There are only three people involved. He looks across the street and he sees the tall man on the other side of the street strutting down the sidewalk. And he walks by and Reggie is oblivious to everything going on. He's got his ice cream truck, opens the back doors, this you know, chill steam comes out and the tall man stops and just sort of has this look of, I don't know if it's it's ecstasy or hate or what, but he just breathes it in as Reggie's just doing his job in front of... <laughs> Reggie's ice cream store. <laughs> I've seen that so many times and it never put two together that Reggie's ice cream store was probably Reggie's. I went to school down in San Diego. I went to undergrad and grad school and we would go up to Julian... For those not in California, if you're filming in Los Angeles, driving down to Julian, that's a haul. For a scene like this, that's that's like a far way to drive. I'm going to tell you right now, Jason, we went there just for a weekend getaway, and it said it was going to take us two and a half hours, and we went on a Friday, and it took us five hours. It was one of the, <laughs> I've driven across this country many times. <laughs> I would do that in a heartbeat, because that was such a painful drive. But Two got, and a half hours went to five. Oh, that's awful. But I got to tell you, Julian, great apple pies. And that area, I've taken pictures and walked that area just for that for that scene. <laughs> we went there. Great apple pies. Charming little town. Absolutely. Some good breweries. Oh, we, we had a good time. I, good. I, I found a couple breweries there. Went there, did some drinking, brought some home. It was a, it was a good old time. I like Julian. <laughs> got a coffee cup out of the deal from the Julian Brewing Company. So Mike's back, and now he's fixing the Cuda. In his garage. Jacked up very precariously, I would say. When I used to work in insurance, we had claims where someone was working on the car jacked up like that and then Jack fell on them. And it's awful. But the dwarves show up and they start rocking the car. And or freak- do they? <laughs> I mean, well, are you going to bring up Timmy? <laughs> so they knock it off the, off the jack. Mike's trapped. He has a hammer. He doesn't know it's Jody. He smacks Jody on the hand those, in the those, foot. Like, those look nothing like dwarf I know. <laughs> with jeans on. Interesting little point because Mike says, hey, there were, those things were here. They were trying to kill me, get me. And Jody's just, you can kind of tell he's going, the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. That's what I'm dealing with. 
And I have to ask you, do you think the Timmy reference, do you think the South Park guys took their character Timmy from the reference in this movie? <laughs> I mean, let's just say it. Because Jody just flat out said he, he doesn't think it's things. He said, he said maybe it was that retarded kid Timmy down the street. And even Don Coscarelli in the commentary said that's something we would never do or get away with today. The film picks up, and this is where Mike's real journey begins, because he's decided, I've had enough. I'm going to go see what's going on. He takes a large hunting knife, puts it down you know, by his ankle. He grabs a crucifix. There are two references to vampires in this movie where they, you think maybe they're dealing with vampires. This is the first one. Vampires have extraordinary strength. You know what? You could write a vampire story and have it whatever you want it to be. Yeah, they could be shiny and, you know, nice and exactly. handsome. <laughs> he's like, I'm going up to the funeral parlor. Again, his bravery is kind of back and forth because this is gutsy. I would not do this as a third. I would not. I like, would not no do this. Way. I would not do this as an adult <laughs> with guns. <laughs> you know? So he goes up there and kicks in a window in the basement, sneaks in, pulls the sneak, goes in. And this is another moment where the Paul man's powers seem to wax and wane depending on his situation. They vacillate a lot. Because at one point early on, he makes Mike's motorcycle crash just by looking at him. He has telekinetic powers sometimes when he wants And later he has telepathic powers. But, you know, in this instance, Mike gets into the funeral home. He's hiding in a casket, you know, being held open by his lighter. Because all 13-year-old boys should carry around a lighter. I think I did when I was 13. <laughs> you never know. You, you always like had a knife and matches or something. You never know when you need something. So, a but black they, jack. But we, get, but we get a guy. A, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we see a groundskeeper. Probably the coolest thing about these movies is coming up. Yes. <laughs> As the groundskeeper gets pulled aside because the tall man enters and basically saves Mikey's hide at the time. Do you think he did that on purpose? I think he's completely toying with Mike Pearson during this whole movie. Or two, this is a complete made-up dream by Mike Pearson, and therefore all these strange things happen to push his dream forward, his adventure forward. He gets out of that casket and goes investigating in a mausoleum, and then he hears a sound. It's the drone. It's that. It's a bit of the that sentinel. The, <laughs> the droning ball. sound. Yes. And of course, he's 13-year-old. So he, he goes, oh, bleep. And then the groundskeeper comes out and grabs him. And they're tussling. And this sphere, this chrome ball, is zipping down the hallway, zipping towards them. And Mike bites the guy and drops down a little bit. And the ball comes up. These two forks come out of it. They come out and go, doink right into the guy's forehead and you're, you're like oh my god that's awesome and it gets better because because then a drill comes out and drills right between the dude's eyes <laughs> and then blood and brain yeah. material just starts spewing out of this ball and the guy's like screaming and writhing and when i was a kid i was like that is the coolest thing that's ever scared me so much and those sentinels that that silver ball is iconic for the phantasm movies and i'm not going to discuss the sequels about what's inside those silver balls i appreciate that (laughs) because i i haven't i i saw the second i saw a couple of the sequels and they left me wanting so much 
this one I kind of yeah. try to just keep oh, yeah. this one it's so great. safe and sacred yeah. because I will say this though they are so cool but when the dude falls down and there's a great touch because Mike is sta- crouching <laughs> off to the side looking in horror and all of a sudden just urine comes out onto the floor I've always thought that was a nice touch but what's interesting is these super cool balls can't get themselves out of the head. No. They can't retract the forks. They're like a hornet or a bee. Like yeah, they're exactly. one use, one, one time. Just one. <laughs> oh, this is a very key moment because Mikey gets up and all of a sudden the tall man comes around. They have their first face off. That cinematography on that scene shows when people can make, even at, at a really small budget, a great scene. That is is creepy because Mike is facing the camera and then in the background, in an ominous fashion, the tall man steps out. That scene is dreadful. <laughs> it's it's so cool though. And they face, he turns around and they face, and at first Mike tries to come up with some like Dennis the Menace or something <laughs> silly where he's like, oh yeah, well, well. And he just goes, oh. And they start walking. It's a very cool choreographed scene because they walk towards each other, they're mirroring, mirroring each other's moves. They walk towards each other, they stop, sort of sidestep, another step, and then Mike goes, uh, I'm not this brave. I'm done. He bolts. He runs, and the tall man chases him. And, and the music a, score changes, and it's, it's screeching. It, it's so cool, and I just think when we get to the end, it's what part of what I think this movie is about. But Mike runs through, goes back towards where he's escaped, slams this door shut boom looks up and there are these fingers the tall man had a, <laughs> had his hand so there's it's a great shot of just these fingers wiggling that were jammed in the door and he takes his knife and bam chops off the fingers grabs one very smart runs jumps through the window as the dwarves are grabbing him and runs home that scene is really strange it adds to my theories that this is an imagination or also the tall man's just toying with. Because the tall man's stride, he probably takes one stride for every 10 strides M- Mikey has to take. Why couldn't he capture him? But anyways, Mike gets home. He posts up on the stairs that night with a gun and the finger that he's locked away in a little tiny box. A little wooden box. Because the finger is still moving. And it's interesting to me because it's like he's guarding Jody. He's on the stairs so that Nobody can get up to Jody. So Jody comes down. A lot of weapons in this movie. So casual. Jody is so casual as he walks down. He just sees his little brother asleep on the stairs with a box and a shotgun. And he just kind of goes, grabs the shotgun, pumps it, and unloads it. Jody is, in a lot of ways, a good brother. Because Mike explains everything to him. And Jody seems a little suspicious that this is all a 13-year-old boy's imagination. Mike hands him the box and Jody opens it and just says, okay, I believe you. He took one look and he's like, no, no, I completely trust you now. Like, and that's a good brother where he's not going to second guess because we've discussed in a lot of other slasher horror movies, the adults never trust anything the kids say. And Jody's like, I'm with you. We got to do something now. (laughs) What's going on up there? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Jody says, you know, we got to go to the cops. Yeah. And Mike's so, super excited, so he goes up to get the box. But the box isn't bouncing around anymore. No. And he opens it, and it's this odd, it's like a giant fly with red eyes. A lot of so, teeth. Really, really nasty. Yeah. Especially, I think we talked about this. When we were kids, it was a lot scarier. It scared the ass it's, out it's of me. It's still pretty creepy. But you, you do see, <laughs> it looks more like you a do see the low, low budget. You do. <laughs> so it comes, and this is a fun piece of acting, because Mike is being 
you know, beset by this giant monster fly and he traps it in a jean jacket because, you know, 1979 and, and he's yelling for Jody and he's throwing his arms around because he has to pretend that there's a monster fly. So he goes down the stairs and Jody comes and takes it and they're both just like flailing about with this. It's a tough piece of acting because you have to pretend. You have to make it convincing. And it is, it's convincing. So they shove it into the trash disposal. Turn it on. But then Reggie shows up for a bit of comic relief. Reggie's seeing something's going on. Fly comes out. Reggie's on board. That's what completes the new trio. Yeah, Yeah. and I think at that time, we need to try our next round of beers. What do we got going? What we have here is Hopavelli. It's a West Coast pale ale. Nice. Yeah. So why do they refer to it, Michael, as a West Coast? Do the East Coast do something different with their pale ales? I mean, the West Coast, a lot of times, is a... Can be a little fruitier. Now, I don't see a lot of West Coast pale ales. Usually, you get your West Coast IPAs. True. Um, Sculpin can be a little more citrusy, a little more tropical, a lot more grapefruity. Yeah, exactly. Cheers. Cheers. But yeah, Hoppa Valley. What's kind of nice is it has this this car on it. Oh yeah, it looks like a classic car. Kind of a low rider, more of a cruiser as opposed to a muscle car. It does fit the bill. It smells really good. It's a oh, great yeah. color on that. Thing is, pale ales got completely pushed to the back by IPAs. IPAs yeah. But it used to be back in the day, every brewery made a pale ale. I mean, you think of pale ale, you think Sierra Nevada. Still fantastic. That's what I think. Immediately. Exactly. And that's this has some reminiscent where it's that tight. It's not quite as like big and punchy. It's a nice, tight little flavor. This, this is good. great, though. Yeah. Hop of Valley. Dimensional. Thank you. Okay, so we get to the new trio. Yeah, the new Lost Boys. Yes. Jody, he's going to take matters into his own hands. What I find as this movie goes on is that Jody keeps trying to keep Michael safe. And there's just a certain point where I'd go, he's more of an asset. You know, Absolutely. So I don't know what's going on. This yeah. kid seems to have survived. He cut that dude's hand off. Maybe I could use his knowledge. So Jody goes up to Morningside. He's, he's going to see what's up. And he follows another, Mike's path. Another instance of great sound effects here. Yes. He goes into the basement window. The tall man, I'm assuming, is letting. He's just like, oh, I'll get the He's toying with them. That's, I mean, it's, it's hard what, to understand. But what I also find kind of funny is Mike gets all the way in, gets to the mausoleum and all this. Jody doesn't get past the basement. He gets in there, and there's some dwarves, and he shoots his gun a bunch, and he runs. He's out the window. Yeah. He, he doesn't get any farther than that, no. and he's gone. Jody gets chased by the hearse. He is leaving the grounds of Morningside, and you see the hearse lights flick on. Mike disregards Jody, and it's always a good idea because Jody's running. He's being chased by the hearse. All of a sudden, the Barracuda pulls up. He doesn't scold him. He just gets in, and here we get a really cool car chase for a low-budget movie, and listening to Don Coscarelli talk about it. Dangerous of what they did. They got no permits for anything they did in this movie, and this was way, way dangerous because (laughs) he's shooting blanks but it's still a 12 gauge and it's still highly dangerous and he's aiming at where don is filming from the back of this car but it's this great little scene where he's driving he's telling mike speed up i want to put some in the motor they crash the hearse and jody's all excited like woo, we just solved the crime and they go back and it's a dwarf and they find out it's tommy it's a compressed version of tommy jody's all worried well, Mike can't go to Tommy's funeral. He doesn't seem very concerned about what Mike's reaction would be to a compressed dwarf monster Tommy. 
for some reason, you got to throw this thing in yeah. the ice cream truck, which I love, is they call Reggie, and Reggie comes, and he, they pick him up, and we realize, oh, he's still the same weight. Yeah. So it's like if you were just shrunk down yeah. to three feet. And I love Reggie's reaction. They put it in his ice cream truck, and he goes, hey, that thing isn't going to bleed all over my ice cream, is it? <laughs> and Jody and Mike are just kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of a great moment because you just put a mutant dwarf yeah. in your ice cream truck, and you're worried about the blood. At that point is when they decide, we're going to drop off Mikey at the antique store. Two women who seem to be friends with Jody. While Mike's there... And he comes across some old photos of Morningside. And it very much reminds me of a Harry Potter scene because he looks at a photo of a what amounts to a, I would say probably in the 1890s, a hearse driver, but it's a horse and carriage hearse. And it is the tall man and his face moves in the photo and looks it comes to life i feel like mike was drawn towards that it wasn't just a coincidence that he went over to those shelves i think the tall man in him there's a connection there and the tall man drew him to this photograph to show him this is what you're messing with i've been around here a long time boy mike immediately he's supposed to be staying here he tells these women and these women listen to him he says i gotta go home and they're like okay even though jody just said we need to have you guys watch mike and keep him safe here we just have a really quick scene after this where reggie's driving in his truck and we hear the dwarf sound and there's a bunch of movement and he's looking over his shoulder something's going on in the back of his ice cream truck and we cut away from that we just assume reggie's in big trouble And then we have the second nightmare scene in this movie with the Pearson brothers. We've seen Mike have a nightmare, and now Jody's at home sitting in their living room in a leather recliner, and he's laying back. Looks like an Eames chair. Yeah. (laughs) He lays back, and all of a sudden, once again, it's focused on his face, and it pulls back, and now he's in the mausoleum. Tall man comes around the corner with slow motion walking. And then arms bust out of the mausoleum and pull Jody in. <laughs> I do have to ask you, Jason, how do you think you would react if you were sleeping and you had a dream and you were in that mausoleum and Angus Scrim just slow oh, motion I'd walked around? Piss my pants. <laughs> I, would, I think it would be one of those right I'd wake up just yeah. like, oh, what, what those? and, and Jane, Jane would be like, you okay? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> the tall man's in my dreams. I don't think that's a good thing. And then, so we have the girls who have now under Volkswagen bug. I've agreed to drive Mike back, and they come across Reggie's flipped over ice cream truck. Is that Reggie's truck? Well, there must be a giant ice cream consortium in this town. Yeah, where there's a it, bunch of old-fashioned ice cream trucks every driving block, everywhere. Every block, you got an <laughs> antique ice cream truck. Mike gets out to investigate. The dwarves come. He says, get out of here. And the girls are like, what's going on? They just don't do anything. And all of a sudden, the dwarves are grabbing at the door. And he says, don't open the door. And one of them opens the door. (laughs) And so all hell breaks loose. Mike fights with them. He gets pushed out the back of his bug. He ends up knocked out on the road as the car drives away. Don't really know what's going on in that car. No. It's just it's sort very of, weird it's a and nonsensical. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a nonsensical, yeah. odd thing that's going yeah. on there. And that's when we get, there might be a mental connection with the brothers. And yeah, that psychic connection where it's flashing between Jody and Mike and all of a sudden linking between each other like they're thinking. And then Mike walks in the door and Jody grabs him. Mike, at the time, drinks like a Dos Equis beer, too. He ta- he ta- oh, yeah. He takes a swig of Dos Equis. 
And that's when Jody goes, of all the things in this movie, this is the thing that is the most like irresponsible is Jody blocks him in the room like bam, yeah. like takes a screwdriver to like make sure the door can't open. And he's like, I'm gonna go take care of this stuff. And and Mike is like sitting at his desk fiddling around. He's got a hammer and he's fiddling around with the shotgun sh- shell. So he like tapes, he takes a pen, yeah. a little thumbtack, puts it in there as like a primer, <laughs> tapes it to the hammer, goes over to the door and whacks it. I, John I Coscarelli think, said he's like, I always just regretted doing this. I know, that's why I, I read the same thing. Like he was concerned that people would copy this. <laughs> uh, when when I was a little kid and I saw this. I thought about trying this. I, I thought, hey, that is that a viable option for things? Can I go do that with well, things? And the funniest thing is I thought the same thing. I was like, you know what? I wonder if I could work this with batteries. And I would tape a battery to a... <laughs> no, I can't remember. I think it was my brother, my, my older brother. I, I was talking about that. And he said, that's not going to work. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah. He said, that's really dumb <laughs> if you try that. And I, and I thought, you know what? You're not Jody. <laughs> And this is a big thing because now... Well, he's going to go. And he opens the door and the flipping tall man is there. Yeah, with his fingers all regenerated. Ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is outstanding. And, and the just, music score changes and he just grabs Mike and like lifts him up by the scuff like he's a little kitten. And he throws Mike in the back of the hearse and they're driving. Mike has the colt, you know, the service colt. That Jody had told him about. Don't point it at a guy unless you intend to shoot it. Don't shoot someone unless you intend to kill him. (laughs) And he doesn't shoot the tall man. No, and I find that very peculiar. He shoots out the back window and he shoots out a tire. The tall man has all these powers. Once again, this seems like a game. So he shoots all that out, jumps out. The tall man, we think the tall man's dead. Crashes the hearse. Mike had mentioned earlier that with all the bodies being stolen, he said, what about mom and dad? And Jody said, forget about them. Don't think about them. Jody didn't forget about them because Jody's in the mausoleum. He's He has the dad's casket pulled out and he can't bring himself to open. He wants to know. He can't bring himself to open that casket. Mike can though. Mike ends up opening it and he says, I'm sorry. And he opens it and of course it's empty and he freaks out. And then the trio reunite in... <laughs> What, what do you name the room? I call it the dimensional room. Yeah. Or which, space portal room, but it, dimensional's good. I think the dimensional room, because yeah. we're going through the dimensions and yeah. we got dimensional brewing. That room, the stark white light is actually, if you're watching this and that scene comes on, it, it could bother your eyes, the bright whiteness of it. Reminiscent of uh, THX 1138. Absolutely. That white room, which that that is one of the most off-putting, disorienting scenes yeah. in film history. This one is similar to that. Could be, but also with this one, you have the sound where it's that droning and... Phantasm sound. They go in. It's It looks like kegs, like black yeah. kegs stacked with little slit windows. Over to the right, you have these two chrome poles that are about three feet apart. They look a bit like, like a, a tuning, tuning fork. fork. Yes. And so Suspiciously like a tuning the fork. The three of them going, <laughs> I have to be honest, if you, know, if you open that door, yes, you're on an adventure, you're trying to figure things out, but at the same time, you open that, that door, yeah. that room, that sound, everything, I'd go, I shouldn't be in here. And of course, Mike... It's like be- a shipping and receiving room. It's <laughs> a nice way of putting it, Jason. <laughs> stealing, stealing bodies and shipping and receiving. But Mike being Mike... He goes over to the two chrome poles and sticks his hand between them, and there's a sound. And oh, go back to the box. No fear. 
some pretty dumb advice because <laughs> I mean seriously <laughs> exactly. because the next time he puts his hand in he gets sucked in yeah. and he's on this flip side he seems side. to be tumbling through another dimension they used a trampoline Oh really? They sh- yeah, they uh, they shot Mike the actor. He was jumping on a trampoline, and that's how they got that effect. All of a sudden, you see a rockscape, a red sky, and it looks like dwarfs carrying these canisters to a vanishing point. I just to point out that scene was shot right around the corner here. For- I was just going to ask you, do you know where that is? It's here, right in Irwindale. And you know what's really nice? You told me it's close to a brewery. <laughs> yes, a brewery that we've gone to before. <laughs> At this point, yeah. I think it's time for our fourth beer, Robot Voice. And this is the... Hazy IPA. Oh, look at that. Fun. Classic robot. The old school robot yeah. must ingest fuel, it's saying. I'm, it's like Rosie from the Jetsons. I'm guessing it does look like Rosie from the... And this is our fuel. Gets us through these movies. <laughs> Cheers. I'll watch this movie again before the year is out. <laughs> mm. Oh, by the way, what do you think of this? This is good. Ooh, that's fruity. It honestly smells a bit like a dreamsicle. Just that fruity. That's good. It's hazy. Yeah, you're not seeing through that. That's, no. That's a, that's a serious hazy. That thing is hazy as all hell. Like, it looks like juice and kind of tastes yeah. like juice. It, these are scary because sometimes you, you go, I could totally drink this yeah. in the morning. You could spend the day drinking these. <laughs> Watching Phantasm 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. <laughs> Trying to make sense of all this. Alone. Because, because I think that's, that's, that's when Jane would probably find something to do. Well, every time I bring up Phantasm, my brother, he's like, you know, I have a lot of questions on that movie. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't want to answer your questions. You can come over and watch it with me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. That's, that is one thing about doing this podcast is when people start asking me about stuff and I go, I just want to enjoy things yeah. sometimes. Mike has fallen through this dimension. All of a sudden, Jody pulls him back in. And Mike got a lot of information just from seeing the dwarves walking with the kegs. The tall man's making these people into slaves. This portal takes him to his planet. They need to be crushed down due to the gravity and the heat. Going back to the scene where he, uh, the tall man walked in front of Reggie's ice cream truck in the cold, I assume that that, that cold, his reaction was in pain then. Because if their planet is super hot, then cold would be an issue with him. You know what? That's the thing. Is I thought the same thing, but then I thought, why does he stop? Yeah, because exactly. He, he seems, I would like he, run from he it. He seems <laughs> to stop and indulge. It's it's yeah. not like he he feels it and goes. So it's like, right. I'm very it's like I'm very curious about what's going on there. Mike gleaned all this yeah. information in those couple of seconds being in there, but before it, much else can go, boom classic lights out situation and you get some classic dialogue yeah. with the lights out yeah <laughs> everyone's like hey where are you where exactly. are you? It's, it's like if the lights went out right now i wouldn't go hey jason where are you go assume you're right there in front of me well i think part of it is that they're afraid that they saw mike fly through these portals that they don't want to walk through them oh no i i, I totally agree because they go back and forth hey where are you yeah. where are you all of a sudden someone hits a, a lighter one of the dwarves is there. Great scene. Yes, absolutely. And then it, then the lights come back up, and it's Reggie alone in the room. And this is a point where sometimes in the movie I'm like, did this movie reset at this point? Because it doesn't explain. This is one of two climaxes in the movie. Only two? I thought there were like three. <laughs> Reggie's in that room by himself. But where's all of a sudden Mike and Jody? I'm assuming they got out of the room. 
And apparently that mausoleum is so small because you get out of the room and you can get outside really quickly. But when you see that Dunsmere mansion as Morningside from the outside, it looks enormous. Reggie's in that room by himself now, and the lights are back on. Yes, and that droning sound is back. And Reggie looks, he looks over at the two poles and flashes back to the tuning fork. And he's got an idea, although he's a little afraid of this idea. I don't think he wants to get too close to that gate. Yeah. So he goes over and has a moment, does it. All of a sudden, boom, the droning is gone and all hell does break loose. <laughs> Everything's being sucked into, in, that into that portal, including him. He's He does a good job fighting, yeah. but the kegs are flying in. And then we get Jody outside. There's a windstorm blowing around. Really well done, yeah. I might add. Jody's running around yelling for Mike. Mike's yelling for Jody. They, the lady in lavender, she's behind him. And then all of a sudden, like she just tenses up because it's like... Whatever Reggie did to those those forks caused her some pain, too. Yes. Which I don't it, understand. Well, it's a tall man. It's his thing. So it's like, hey, you just screwed up my deal. And Reggie's going to have to pay because Reggie gets out of the house. And he sees the lady in lavender laying in wait. And she stabs him. Mike and Jody see this and Mike wants to run after him. Joey's like, it's too late. And there's a great shot of the tall man standing over Reggie yeah. with the mansion in the background and he's got the knife and Reggie's just dying, yeah. Yeah. you know, stabbed in the gut. To me, it looks like Morningside Mortuary. The mausoleum is pulled into the portal. It blinks out of existence. At this point, <laughs> I think like the movie's over, but then you're back and Jody and Mike are describing how we're going to get rid of the tall man. We haven't covered Scooby Doo, <laughs> you know. It's like we exactly. t- we touched on a lot of different things, but we haven't touched on Scooby Doo because there's an old abandoned mine, which makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, it's just hilarious. To once me. again, it sounds like a 13 year old thinking like an adventure that they had. This is a way to dealing with the tall man. There's an old mine that has a thousand foot deep drop. Totally. <laughs> Because all mines just go Drop straight, straight down, down a thousand like, feet. A that's second. that's how mines that work. Mines, you know, we, we just did. We just covered a mining <laughs> in, in <laughs> my bloody Valentine. And I don't think I had to drop a thousand feet down. But no, Jody has this idea. He goes, "I'm going to go up there. I'm going to going to disguise it." And so Jody takes off, and he asks Mike to lock up the house. As Mike, he like he does one window. And he opens up, just check outside. And he does a second window, and he opens up. And it's the tall man's face right there. <laughs> totally Angus Grimm, reaching Dude. through the windows, breakaway glass, doing Another his, doing, huge jump scare. In doing this his movie. own stunts. Yeah. <laughs> and he chases Mike through the house. They're going back and forth yeah. when Mike is running. And all of a sudden, a door blows out. And there's Angus Grimm standing yeah. there. One of the guys in the crew is running that door. Okay. So he's holding it. Okay. And then he just runs forward. So he's so there's a person behind that door. Because I, I always wondered, I wonder how they did that. It just wires or something. Don Coscarelli explains it. Nice. And, and he even says, I can't remember who, who did it, but he's like, somebody's just standing there running the door. And they end up outside. Mike, you don't know this, but he must be thinking, I'm going to lead him toward the mine. And that's where we get this telepathic thing. The tall man, he says, you play a good game, boy. But it's over, and now you're going to die. He's speaking to Mike mentally. Now, his brother had just left in a car to drive to the mine a couple minutes beforehand, and now Mike is running towards the mine. And this is Mike's gambit. Is this realistic? But here are the trials. It's interesting because we get to those trials of Mike. Boom. The tall man has 
tombstones come up in front of him. No fear. Mike thinks yeah. no fear. Jumps over them. All of a sudden, mud grabbing his the feet. hands, just like when yeah. the, the nightmare he woke yeah. up to, and then the lady in lavender yeah. is there. Oh. Yeah, which is a tall man, which I don't understand. Like, why did he just grab him? <laughs> it's supposed to be these levels, these trials, sort of like kung fu. The mine is really close. I don't know why Jody drove there. <laughs> Everything is close to this town. <laughs> Reggie's ice cream shop, you know, Morningside Cemetery and Mausoleum is really close. Everything is within walking distance. Should be one of those <laughs> European cities where they ban the cars. Mine's just like <laughs> right across the street. <laughs> but it's great because Mike does the yoink. He yeah. jumps over. And the tall man falls into the mine. But he's able to grab hold at first. <laughs> Doing his own stunts again. Yes. <laughs> like There's no stunt double for Angus Scrum. He's 50-something and yeah. he's doing all of this stuff. He falls down. Yeah. Not only did Jody have enough time to disguise the mine, he had enough time to set up like one-ton stones to make a freaking rock fall. And see, I'm wondering, how did Mike know that the mine was covered at that point? Like See, I don't think he was going to the mine. I think he was going to Jody because okay. Jody was going to be there. And when he got there, he realized, oh, the mine. Because everybody knows about the old mine. See, to me, once again, it sound, it reminds me of a 13-year-old boy's imagination. Like, I'm able to escape this monster by like jumping over a mine. My brother's saying. Oh, I me. totally get it. No, you know? I, I totally get it. Because he looks up in the mountain where the rocks have rolled down to cover this mine. <laughs> and there's a bright light behind the mountain. And it's all of a sudden, it's Jody standing up there. And his, his arms are raised. Yeah, yeah. Like, we did it. Mike wakes up. This is a big ending turning point. Maybe this is jarring. Yeah, it is. Don Coscarelli says it's something that people always get on his case about. I like it because it adds to the whole dreamlike quality of the movie. Because Mike wakes up in bed. And he's had a bad dream. And he goes downstairs. It's not Jody there. It's Reggie. Yeah. Wait, sit, wait. I thought sit, Reggie was dead. Sitting in front of the fire wearing a flannel. Yeah. Because they're in Playing Oregon. Playing some tunes on the guitar. Play, exactly. With his ponytail. We have yeah. to. You have to say... He's bald on the top with a ponytail. That's that's Reggie. That's Reggie. It's a good look. look. Yeah. It's, and it's a, it's a great look. I like it. I like everything. Everything about Reggie Bannister just appeals to me. Just seems like a good person. And he goes down and he's telling Reggie about his quote unquote nightmare. And we find out, no, Jody died and he died in a car accident. It was a nightmare, Mike. It was a phantasm, a fantasy. And Mike keeps saying... Those rocks aren't going to keep him. He's, they can't stop him. I really, really think Reggie Bannister does a bang-up piece of acting because he just kind of goes, you know, hey, you know, I can't be Jody, but I'm going to do whatever I can to try to fill that space in your life. It's a touching moment. There's dialogue stuff that I kind of tease about in this movie, but I think that is a really touching moment and a great piece of acting. And he says, you know, hey, you're 13. Let's hit the road for a few weeks. Go get your gear. And then he starts playing... The same song he and Jody were playing earlier in the movie. And Mike goes upstairs to his room and is grabbing his gear. And it's a great scene because the door opens with a mirror on it. And who is hanging there with a new haircut, I might say. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But it's the tall man. (laughs) Yeah, and I'll tell you, the first time I saw that movie, man. It freaked me out. It was something I'd read about. Again, pre-internet, just reading things. It was always... One of the most bang-up endings, people would say, this is one of the most bang-up endings you'll ever have. There's the tall man, and he just goes, boy. And Mike looks, and all of a sudden, a bunch of hands come through the mirror, grab Mike, and pull him through. That's it. It's over. That's the end yeah. of the movie. 
Do you think the whole thing was a dream? This is a movie where it's like a dream within a dream because you have characters like Jody where you're with them for a while and they have their own nightmares. And I think at the end it's quite clear that this is a dream. But if it's a dream about a nefarious character like the tall man, then how is the tall man in the reality? You know, if this is all Mike made all this up to deal with the death of his brother, then why is the tall man really there? It's so strange... I don't know. I would say that it's a dream and that in one reality, the tall man does exist. And for a while, Mike existed in a alternative reality where his brother survived his death. It's so well done. I like the ending. I like it because also you're like, what just happened? I think we talked about it. And this is my take. But just taking this movie as it is, I think Mike and the tall man are similar. They're connected in some way where they jump dimensions. I think that the movie wasn't a dream. I think it was another dimension. And when Mike wakes up, he's defeated the tall man in that dimension. He wakes up, and it's this dimension. And in this dimension, Jody died. Reggie's alive. And so he and Reggie are going to go on the road until the tall man defeats Mike. They're going to keep going through this. It's like Stephen King's Gunslinger, which is, you know, a cycle that keeps repeating itself over and over again. I mean, yeah, that's how I look at it. Looking at this movie, you said it. The tall man can't be here. If it's all a dream, why is he here? And it goes back to when they first meet mirroring each other's movements. The tall man and Mike, there's clearly a connection there. And the tall man talking to him telepathically going, you know, hey, you play a good game, but it's over. And Mike's like, no, not now. Maybe later. And the next run, we just keep going through. It's like almost a video game. Either way, I, does it need to be asked? Do you yeah. recommend this movie? Oh, of course. I mean, I'm going to recommend this <laughs> I think movie. that's just stupid. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. cheers. Got to, seriously, cheers, because there are going to be movies we both love that we're going to cover. Absolutely. Try to parse them out. Yeah. This, to me, is like one of the top ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, like when, I, when I mentioned this one, I was almost, do I want to pull the trigger on Phantasm this early? It's not just one of my favorite movies. I think this is one of the coolest movies. I agree. If you're into horror, if you're into sci-fi, I think there's a Lovecraft element. We've talked about we t- the dimensional thing, coming here, taking people, dominating humanity. There's a little Lovecraftian vibe to it. Independent filmmaking at its best. It's not cheesy. It's just a great movie. It's well shot. I find it really scary. It scared me as a kid. It is a horror movie that I recommend all the time. And it has that dreamlike quality where you're unsure of your footing. It reminds me of like Messiah of Evil. It has elements of Suspiria. I thoroughly enjoy the movie. This is a movie that I put on every year at Halloween time. I read Phantasm Exhumed by Dustin McNeil. Great book. I went back and read Kate Coscarelli's, her novelization of the movie. And if you want some additional insight and some additional facts of like, What's the background of Jody? And like, how do they have this money to live like in this nice house? It's a neat little novelization. I don't know where to find it. I got it at Comic-Con years ago and I got it for my dad. And I actually had Reggie Bannister, Don Coscarelli, and Agus Scrim all sign it for my dad. Awesome. That is so cool. <laughs> Movies that are just propelled by motion. The Barracuda is the perfect car for it because this movie just moves. It's... It just cruises along. It doesn't get bogged down. I'm, I'm kind of glad there are a lot of things cut out of it. And I think that actually streamlining it just propels this thing at this pace 
that just kind of keeps you on your toes and sort of keeps you off balance and, and these things come at you. I don't care what anybody says. I think it's a brilliant movie. And the soundtrack probably is one of the best horror movie soundtracks I'll put up there of all time. Don Coscarelli wrote a book called True Indie, and then he actually, for the audiobook, he actually reads the book himself. Really worth checking out. I describe this movie to my daughters because they're always just like, why do you like this movie, Dad? And they said this, Dad, the tall man sounds a lot like Slenderman. I can't help but think that some people along the way have seen Phantasm, saw Angus Scram, and went, that's terrifying. I thought, you know what? Michael myself should do eventually is we can't drive to Julian that's a far we can't go up to Densmere but maybe we can find a brewery next to each one of the locations and we can do a phantasm brewery tour what is it Mount Low Brewery in Pasadena that right next to the there's breweries everywhere <laughs> but Julian's a cool little town <laughs> Once again, thank you so much, Dimensional, for supporting us. It's super cool that you guys support us. We appreciate it. These have been fantastic. This robot voice was super tasty. That went down way too fast. The Mellow Astronaut? I oh, mean, I, mean, I love every, that. Every one of these. That Pilsner was great. Chickadee, check yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's something <laughs> I could ride a lawnmower. If, if I had a lawn, <laughs> it seems irresponsible to have a lawn in Southern California right now. But no, I mean, that that was great. All the beers were fantastic. We are very grateful. We're grateful to be able to do this. We're grateful to breweries that take care of us. Yeah. You know, give Allow us, us to drink beer and, you know, wax poetically about movies that... Hey, you know, because it was a big deal to me. I wasn't going to put any beer on Phantasm. Otherwise, we just drink Dos Equis. That was, exactly. <laughs> Two that, six packs of Dos Equis That each. was going to be a seriously <laughs> special beer, and I just, it just kind of fell into place that I was like, oh, I like this brewery. It's from my hometown. They supported us. So anyway, I, I think that wraps this one up. Please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our website. This is Beer and Beer Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael.